Hello and welcome back to our uh, Sabbath School podcast as we discuss some of the Psalms. We are very much enjoying this process of, of finding some of the uplifting and some of the challenging passages in the Bible. We hope that you are too. Neither myself, nor Lachlan, nor Ken, nor Luke are desperate to become internet superstars. But we are interested in knowing if, if the discussions we have help you, if the discussions we have uh, challenge you or inspire you. And if you do find them useful, then uh, please feel free to pass on the link to the podcast to your friends. And please email comments to us and questions to us. And we're going to finish today's episode with a question that we'd like feedback on. Uh, the email address that we receive comments on is sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. I'm Cameron, and it's really good to have you here with us. Yeah, g'day. I'm Ken. Great to be here discussing uh, this Psalm 138 this week. And I'm Lachlan, and I'm glad to be back. Yes, Luke, who's normally joins us from Hong Kong, was not able to join us this week because of a, a mismatch of schedules between households and countries. So we'll uh, look forward to him joining us again next week. As Ken said, the psalm we're discussing this week is Psalm 138, chosen because it's uh, adjacent to Psalm 137, our psalm from last week, but very different in tone and from actually a, a different period in Israel's history. It's very interesting to see the contrast presented by these two psalms. Lachlan, do you want to start reading the psalm? And we'll uh, read three verses each. Yeah, sure. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Although the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he perceives from far away. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With your right hand, you save me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. Well, this is very much more of a standard psalm. This is the sort of psalm that we tend to hear a little bit more of. Yeah, I can imagine this psalm being read out in a in an evensong program, in a, a thanks program. This is this is exactly what we've been looking for. Yeah, it's a bit easier than the uh, than the psalm from last week. Though there are some interesting similarities. Uh, in the very first verse, there's a reference to praising God before the gods, which in my translation is put in inverted commas, a suggestion of praising God amidst foreigners. It's interesting that when they actually were foreigners, as recorded in, in the previous psalm, they, they found it quite difficult to praise God. In verse 2, Cam, they bow down toward your holy temple. That's also... Uh, making me recall stories of their exile. So that that fits with the idea that you just said about being in the presence of other gods or foreign religions. But it's your steadfast love and your faithfulness this time. It's not giving. It's not sorrow. It's a very different feel. There is though uh, a reference. I mean, it's it's oblique and it's quite palatable. It's a bit less in your face than in the previous psalm. Uh, it does refer to the author's foes in verse seven. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. The Psalms very much do have a, an us-first-them mentality. Yeah, there's a very adversarial feel. 
quite a lot of them are not even us versus them, are they? They're, they're me versus them. This one, it's interesting. This one is the first psalm that we've looked at yet, I think, in this podcast series that has been so thoroughly the first person perspective on the world. Yes, it's I, I, I give you thanks. I bow down on the day I called. It's also one of the first psalms we've read that is actually explicitly directed to God as the audience. It's interesting to look at the contrast uh, between what David does and what he praises God for. So David says, I give you thanks. Uh, I bow down toward your holy temple. On the, I called and uh, uh, I walk in the midst of trouble. And then to look at how the actions of God that correspond to those things. Uh, the steadfast love and faithfulness is what the thanks is given for and the bowing down to the holy temple is given for and the answer and strengthening of the soul uh, is the response of God to the call and the walking in the midst of trouble is the precursor to God's action of preserving against the anger of the enemies and the stretching out of uh, his right hand and deliverance. That's made me think of something, Ken, as you, as you were stepping through that. This is a psalm of thanks. And am I missing something? It doesn't, there's no sort of petitions or requests. It's, it's not a psalm saying, you know, may your name be exalted. It's observing God has exalted his name above all things. Mm-hmm. It's, not a, it's not a psalm saying, may you preserve me. It's a psalm observing, God, you do preserve me. So it's, it's, its entire construction is thankfulness for what is being observed to happen, not at all a request for it to take place. Except for the last sentence. Ah, yes. Which is an interesting, an interesting contrast. And one of the questions that it might be worth pondering further is when David is with his whole heart giving thanks for God's steadfast love and faithfulness and his deliverance in the midst of trouble from the anger of his enemies. And in the very sentence before, is confidently saying that God will fulfill his purpose because his steadfast love endures forever. But he still has to say, don't forsake the work of your hands. Uh, Why is it that such wholehearted thankfulness still carries with it a need to remind God to hang about? Well, it's not the only passage of that sort, is it? There's uh, Moses has to remind God that if he doesn't bring these troublesome people into the promised land, he's going to have a... It won't look good on his resume as a God. I mean, if if he does his miraculous deliverance and can't follow through with it. There is Abraham who negotiates with God. And in the New Testament, there's the Greek woman who employs some really good reasoning. She, she argues her case and impresses Christ. Christ says, we don't take food off the table and give it to the dogs. She says, yes, but the dogs do get the, bit, the bits the children don't want, which must have been a very insightful comment for Christ. And must have been in his mind when he tells the Jews that if he'd gone to Tyre and Sidon, they would have accepted him. 
maybe God just enjoys the interaction. He enjoys being asked for things. And we ought to do it. My mind went somewhere slightly different. I think you're right, Cam. I wondered how much this reveals to us about the sort of kind of person, the state of mind or the personality of the author of these Psalms. You know, we've commented before, and I think many people throughout Christian history and Jewish history have commented, the author of many of these Psalms seems prone to a few things, in my opinion, a little bit of an extreme swing from very positive to very dark perspectives on the world. So there's an extremist sort of swing in in mood. And the psalmist also seems to have, I don't know, is it an insecurity or a um, a sort of nagging fear? Some some sense in which there's always that question. In this psalm, as we just observed, everything is great. I give you thanks for everything. Oh, um, but please don't forsake me. <laughs> and, you know, you wonder how much of that is is the window into the human, the the side, the uh, the whole Christian faith is built around the idea of the incarnation. God comes to us not only as himself, but in the form of a human. And I think that the scriptures are thoroughly incarnational. God speaks to us through the scriptures as himself, but also through the words and perspectives of humans who have written this stuff down. so You mentioned, Locke, that the Psalms swing from the positive to the negative. At their most negative, though, there are some really surprising turnarounds. I'm thinking of Psalm 22, which starts as dismal as it, as it gets and, and ends up quite upbeat by the end. And uh, this Psalm starts very positive. But even this Psalm, you know, God does not remove troubles from the author. God is present in the midst of troubles. You couldn't accuse the author, even in his most upbeat moments, of being naive. Uh, getting back to the um, you know, do not forsake the, the work of your hands, there's a couple of other ways of, of looking at that, I think, because it, that, that's the last sentence in the phrase or in the thought, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. And it's simply the other side of that confidence uh, in what God will do. It's uh, God will fulfill his purpose, which is his steadfast love. So that's the positive way of putting it, turning it around. He won't forget uh, to do that. That, that, mm. that might be another way of looking at it. One other way is uh, it, perhaps this is just an, a creative way of the author again celebrating his his status as God's created. So the author is in a way reaffirming the correct relationship between himself and his God. I like that. Yeah, that's good. I was going to comment, Ken, that you, you could well be onto something there because I remember reading somewhere that quite a common poetic kind of construction, just as for us, rhyming words are a sort of indicator of poetry and some people would say of a rather simple kind of poetry perhaps but it certainly is a clue that what you're reading is poetry if there's a rhythm and every second line rhymes with the preceding line uh, for the ancient hebrew one of those common patterns of a more poetic kind of expression is this repetition where a statement is made and then it is remade slightly different but essentially repeating the same thing and i'm looking in this psalm for some examples i give you thanks with my whole heart and then in verse two and give thanks to your name so 
the same sentiment is being expressed twice in repeat in slightly different formulations. One of my favourite examples of that, Locke, is in Isaiah 40, at the end of Isaiah 40. It does a repetition and it talks about God giving strength to the weary. Even youths grow tired and grow weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And it's very interesting that the author chose to list those three things in that order, because it would be much more dramatic to say they will walk and not be faint. They will run and not grow weary. They will soar on wings like eagles. Yeah, that's great. One of the classes I took when I was at Avondale was on the Bible as literature, and the lecturer, uh, Daniel Reno, suggested that perhaps the author that illustrates, as with some of the Psalms that we've read, a, a very uh, underlying sense of realism on the part of the author. At times it feels like we saw, like eagles. Occasionally we get to run and not grow, grow weary. Mostly we walk. And if we're lucky, we won't be faint. I'm, I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with the, uh, the fact that you would turn it around the other way because not a, I mean, it's God is there not only when you're soaring with the eagles uh, and not only when you're running, uh, but even when you're just walking. So anyway, uh, it's a nice thought. Nice thought. I like it, Ken. This is picked up in the psalm, and this is one of the, the things that I thought of reading Psalm 138. One of the things for which... God is praised is that though he is on high, he is close to the humble, but the proud he knows from afar. And this is such a ubiquitous theme in the Bible. Uh, it comes out uh, in almost all of Israel's history. If you you know Jacob was not the successful son in terms of the the manly hunter. You know Joseph is thrown into prison, and it's in prison that he fulfills God's purpose for for him. You know, all through Israel's history, Israel was called to be, in Deuteronomy it says, you will be strangers in a foreign land. And at that point, uh, Moses is describing the, their state in the promised land. When you reach the promised land, you'll be strangers in a foreign land. The land is God's. And we've talked about how they were forbidden to develop really large military you know, might. Uh, so it's very strong in the in the Old Testament. It's very strong... Uh, all the way through. It's very strong in Christ's teaching in the Beatitudes. It's not always easy to see who's blessed. You know, the people who are blessed are those who are lowly in spirit, uh, the people who have a strong hunger and thirst. It comes out strongly in the Magnificat, in Mary's song, when she finds herself pregnant, which says this upheld to be the sort of epitome, the, 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 the psalm, Jewish psalm at its best. Mary refers to this property of God, that God is close to humble people, but the proud he knows from afar. It occurs in a verse I was discussing, Ken, with your father this week. First uh, Peter, the cast all your cares upon God because he cares for you. That verse is given in the context of God is close to humble people, but he's opposed to the proud. And because he's close to humble people, be humble, cast your cares upon him. And this, this message, this idea of God being the God of the lowly is very countercultural. I mean, it was at the time. It's still countercultural. I think of certain American politicians, one in particular, who many people consider he has the mandate of heaven. And the proof that he has the mandate of heaven, the proof that God's on his side is his success. 
is is the fact that he's proud, is the fact that he's a high flyer. And the whole health, health wealth theology is really undermined by this psalm. The author of this psalm is going through troubles. The author of this psalm, you know, wants to be remembered. The So many of the stories of the Bible have that theme. I mean, how many of the big Bible characters that we know and love from way back even as children's stories were actually on the out pretty much every single one of the Old Testament prophets. They they come in and speak to kings, but they're not kings. You know, there's there's women, the whole book of Ruth, for example, is not even really talking about powerful people. The it's very, very difficult to try to escape the idea that God is close to humble people. That's very much a theme. That's what Jesus was accused of. Um uh, ah. most of the time, uh, and indeed he praised those who were humble, the widow's might, um, uh, as, as an example, uh, going to the Beatitudes, uh, the meek. Um, one of the things about the do not forsake the work of your hands, if that were to be taken as a, 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 an uncertain request, it might suggest that even the strongest and, and most sincere faith that carries with it an element of doubt and that there's an inevitability to that because the human condition is such that God will always be mysterious and the ways that he works will never be contained and constrained by human thought so that while there can never be any doubt about his faithfulness, precisely what that will look like at any given point may not always be predictable. It's interesting, isn't it, in verse 3 when it says, uh, I called and you answered me. Does he? I mean, not if you read all of the other Psalms, not all of the time at least. Uh, well, this, in my translation, it's worse. It says, "On the day I called, you answered me." That that's um, that's a bit hard to say. That always happens, perhaps. One of my favourite passages in the Bible is when Mary and Martha asked Christ to come to heal Lazarus, and Christ does not come on the very day. What he says on the very day is to his disciples, "Don't worry, this won't end in death." Then he hangs around, fools about for two days. And then he says, all right, well, we'd better go uh, because Lazarus is asleep. And the disciples question uh, Christ. They say, if he's asleep, he's getting better. It's fine. We don't need to go. And Christ says, no, look, you don't understand. He's dead. I think the disciples could have been forgiven for being a little bit confused about whether Lazarus was getting better or not because Christ had said to them explicitly that the sickness wouldn't end in death. And that you can just sense the bewilderment of these poor disciples because then Christ turns to them and says, hey, do you know what? Lazarus is dead and I'm glad he's died because it will help you believe in me. Because two days ago, remember, I said it wouldn't end in death and now he's died. And it must certainly be the case, drawing on your earlier comment, Ken, that a life of faith must, I think, necessarily be so mystifying and bewildering at times because we are dealing with a God we are the created, he's the creator. He he is genuinely above us. Of course, Christ is right. The sickness doesn't end in death. But the way it happened was not the way I don't think that Lazarus would have chosen 
or Mary or Martha or the disciples. It was it was a difficult time for all of them. Yeah, very difficult. It I mean, it's so easy for us, I think, reading the Gospels to just uh, judge very harshly the disciples and all of the people around and say, why couldn't everyone see what Jesus was doing? Surely it was really obvious. I think little episodes like that are really helpful to confront us and remind us what Jesus was doing was communicating something so dramatically different from what they had in their mind. It It's absolutely no surprise at all that they really had difficulty keeping up with him. And, you know, we benefit from so much hindsight and we know the ending of the story when we start reading the beginning. It's It's not fair for us to to jump in and say, oh, well, we would have been so different had we been there. Yeah. Well, the other th- point that has to be made is either Christ was naive or he was doing this deliberately. He was actually trying to confuse his disciples. Yeah, and sometimes, I mean, that doesn't need to be malicious, does it? Sometimes what he may well have been trying to do was... Um, pr- orchestr- he may well have been trying to orchestrate an event so memorable so confronting so surprising and and so different from expectation that it was memorable and transformative um and all of those sort of in other words one argument could be that he was orchestrating an educational experience and trying really hard to actually break through and change some of the way that they were thinking the other element to all of this is of course that Lazarus was a particular friend and Christ took more liberties perhaps with people who he knew could cope. This was an, a, an important definitive moment in his ministry. And Christ didn't orchestrate that event around strangers. They were people he knew, pe- people he knew would survive the experience intact. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in an essay on prayer, made the observation. If He says, if against all expectations, our prayers are answered. We'd better not think too highly of ourselves. In the great battle, perhaps if we were a bit stronger, we'd be sent to a more distant outpost to defend a more indefensible position against even larger odds. Uh, were we were we stronger people? You know, God intervening on our behalf does not demonstrate any merit of ours. He said we can't forget that the one person, and he's talking of Christ, who was most like God, who sought God most sincerely, who emulated God most accurately, was most abandoned by God at his hour of greatest need. And he said, there is a mystery in this, which even if I had the capacity, I wouldn't have the courage to investigate. There is very much a sense, even in this psalm, that being God's you know, cherished creation doesn't mean you don't have trials. God, God is with you there through them. So I, I still have some difficulties with this wording of, you know, in, on the day, on the day that I cried out, help came. And I thought back to a different story, uh, which can't fall into quite the same category, but it has a similar theme. And it's the story of the Exodus. And if, if you think back to Exodus, the book of Exodus opens, and it actually opens, um, I just went and checked it, Chapter 1, it talks about Pharaoh oppressing Israel. Then there's the story of the birth of Moses in chapter 2, and it gets all the way through to where Moses flees to Midian. And right at the end of chapter 2 of the book of Exodus, in chapter 2, verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. 
Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, that's fantastic. And I've mentioned before, a previous week, that this is, this is the cry of oppression, and God comes to their aid, and that's what God always does. And that's, that's a theme that is deep in the story of the Exodus. But it is a little hard to say that God came in the day that they, on the day they cried out. Because by this point, the, the babies have been thrown into the water, they've been, they've been oppressed, they've been slaves, presumably for more than a day. Definitely for more than a day, because for at least Moses' lifetime. And so, you, you know, I find myself wondering this, this tension where the psalmist says, on the day I called, you answered me. Well, so there's a couple of ways to take that. One is, you know, an answer that I... Uh, uh, an interpretation that I've certainly encountered many times. God may answer, but the answer might be wait a bit longer. So that could could actually be an answer from God. So that's that's it lets fine. him off the yeah. hook a bit easily, I think. Yeah, <laughs> do you think so? All right. Well, then we have to look and try something else. Another another thought that occurred to me was we have certainly seen examples in the Psalms where the psalmist perhaps gets slightly carried away, it perhaps exaggerates or stretches things just a little bit, and in this case could be responding to a state of mind that we've identified feels positive in this psalm. And from a positive, optimistic perspective on the world, could be reflecting back on the times that, that God has come, because he's thank, the psalmist is thanking God for all of these things, um, and, and for protecting him and, and preserving his life. And from that state of mind, it may be that it feels like all of the intervening waiting and questioning and doubt sort of fades away. And it really literally felt in this moment to the psalmist that God had answered him when he reflected on it every time he'd called out on the day he called. And so it's, it's an exaggeration of sorts, but not really a dishonest manipulation. It's, it's, a, it's a valid expression of the, of the feeling that the psalmist has when in this sort of secure, positive, uplifting state of mind. Do you remember Lock Lady Northcote's Canyon? <laughs> I certainly do. So Ken, Lock and I went on a bushwalk once, and the, the pivotal moment in my mind was after walking for about 12 hours on a day when we'd planned to walk for about six, and almost gotten lost about three times and stuck in a canyon. It was pouring rain, and it was the snowy mountains, and it was freezing cold, and it was winter, and we... We hadn't got to the hut and it was dark and we decided to pitch a tent and we pitched a tent on an island, which is a bit of a worry because we we're in a canyon and there was a river flowing on both sides of us and we started to rain and we hoped the river wouldn't rise and then we lit a fire, which was against the rules except for emergencies and we thought this probably was an emergency. And then just as the fire developed some warmth, and this is a very clear memory, the fire disappeared. It just it didn't, it didn't go out in the sense that fires normally go out. It just wasn't there anymore. And... We went over to peer at the fire and we discovered that the island we were on was not an island. It was boulders onto which some undergrowth and ferns and stuff had fallen and grown. And um, the river was flowing underneath us. And our fire had... Oh, no! Our fire had burnt through. Oh, no! Our fire burnt through and it disappeared into the river in, in a little puff of steam. Oh, so, and we were so, the only response to that was, we, there was none of us had any appetite to try again and light a second fire. We just said that's it, and we crawled into our sleeping bags and went to and sleep. The, and the next day, we the next day we found that the 
hut we were aiming for was only a bit less than a kilometre down the river. Oh. The point was that one of the girls on the trip vowed and declared at the time most vehemently that she was never, ever going to look back on this experience in a positive light. And a month or two later, I heard her, overheard her describing with you know obvious relish to her friends the huge trials and hardships that she'd been through. And it was obviously a story she was going to enjoy telling for the rest of her life. So, you know, things do look a bit different in retrospect. And perhaps this psalm is one of the psalms that's written in retrospect. I looked back and now that I look back, I can see that God answered. Maybe this is the sort of psalm the disciples would have written after Lazarus had risen from the dead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, quite. And and look, I've, um, uh, I've had experience, uh, of how, in the way that I see it, God uh, set up answers to a prayer that I hadn't even yet prayed in very particular ways that in fact involve the phrase that we looked at a little while ago about uh, God granting the desires of your heart, which is one of the reasons why that particular passage is so important to me. The story's too long and I can't share it now, um, but Time for God is not the most important detail. Hmm. Yeah, I like the idea that if he, on occasion, feels a little slow to respond, uh, but on other occasions he responds before we've even thought of the request or the prayer to ask, then then maybe it's true that on average, it's mathematically correct to say that on the day <laughs> I called you answered me. Like, there's no suggestion in this psalm now that I look at it. The psalmist is not suggesting that God always answers on the day. Maybe he has a specific instance in mind. Maybe he's, he's thinking of a particular trial in which he you know, turned to God and God answered in a very direct way on the day. I like that. I like that because I think, um, you know, we've, we've explored a couple of instances where we could, you know, from the raw logic side of things, poke a little hole in this and say it can't be always true. But you're exactly right. The fact that it's not always true doesn't diminish um, in any way the times when God does, in fact, answer time critically right away when called. And that could be one of those moments exactly that's on the author's mind. Well, we're running out of time and there's many other interesting things to pull out of a a psalm like this. Uh, We've got a couple of requests for our listeners at the end. Uh, But before we do... And before we wrap up with this psalm, so anxious were we to jump into our discussion, we forgot to start with a prayer. Uh, So we might end with a prayer instead, uh, at least end our discussion on this psalm with a prayer. Ken, would you like to pray? I'd love to. Do not forsake the work of your hands. We bow down and give thanks for your steadfast love and faithfulness. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, one thing which we've not done in previous episodes, but which I think could be fruitful, is uh, finish our discussion. We've run out of time. What are the things that you would love to discuss, Locke and Ken, if we had more time? And perhaps our listeners can can voice their uh, answers, their opinions, their ideas uh, about the questions. Do either of you have something that springs out of the sun that we've not had a chance to deal with, or, or the psalms in general? as we look on the last four episodes that we've done. One thing that occurs to me, we didn't 
get a chance this evening much to look at verse 7. Uh, we discussed it briefly, but walking in the midst of trouble, preserving my life, stretching out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. This time we've talked in really positive terms, and perhaps we've done that to compensate for some of our previous discussions that have looked at some of the negative and more distressed states of mind of the author of the Psalms. But I think there's an interesting question there about um, experiences or times where you feel God has preserved your life, has has reached out his hand to defend you from enemies and to protect you in times of trouble. You know, we've commented a number of times. It barely even needs to be said again. But right now, globally, a lot of people are in the midst of trouble. So there's there's almost certainly some interesting thoughts there. I would ask the question, what does this psalm specifically thinking of verse 7, but then the whole frame of the psalm, have to say about those experiences of trouble that we might live through today. That sounds great. Ken, is there anything that springs to mind for you? A more general, uh, even, uh, than that ubiquitous problem of pain that, uh, well, perhaps Locke wasn't referring necessarily to that as a problem, but really as a response. How do we respond to walking through the midst of troubles? which is a different issue. But for me, a more general issue is um, how does one talk to God? Uh, how do we pray? Uh, I think the Psalms are wonderful examples of, of prayer, but uh, it's still a, a perplexing issue uh, for me. Prayer, how, why, uh, and what response ought we expect? My question is related, Ken. These were not just prayers, these were songs. In our discussion, we've yet to find a, a psalm, although perhaps the one we've done this week is the closest we've come to so far, that resembles the sorts of songs that I hear sung in the churches I attend. At least most churches that I know of that sing worship songs. The, the songs have a very different tone to most of the psalms. What was the purpose of these songs? Where were they sung? Did the psalmist, did the ancient Israelites have a broader scope and a broader concept of what worship was and the, how much human experience was allowed to be brought into worship? How large was that scope? Is there a challenge in this to expand the repertoire? Why are so few of our, our worship songs in minor keys? There's a great Tim Finn song, um, Living in a Minor Key, a melancholy right. mystery. Right. We have uh, so far meandered our way through the Psalms on a haphazard basis. I feel fully vindicated in this because they are organised in a haphazard way. Uh, we'd be very interested in finding out what Psalms people would like us to discuss next. Perhaps you have a favourite Psalm, a Psalm that really speaks to you. Uh, that means something to you. Perhaps you have a psalm that you have always found incomprehensible, a psalm that's very difficult. The email address that you can send comments to is sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com, and we'd love to hear from you. We'd be really interested to know both of those things. Well, first of all, the answers to the questions that we've posed, uh, Locke's question about how this psalm relates to the COVID-19 crisis, Ken's question about prayer, and my question about worship music. And as well as that, if you would enjoy us discussing a particular psalm, please let us know, and we'd love to do just that. 
Yeah, thanks for listening and thanks for giving us an excuse to have these conversations. And enjoy the conversations, um, whatever uh, the outcome of them is. It's great to be able to share them. See you next time.